This podcast is brought to you by Church Society, a fellowship contending to reform and renew the Church of England in biblical faith. information about Church Society and all the things that we do on our website churchsociety.org. You'll also find there the full archive of the podcast. Well welcome to another one of our Heresy Half Hour podcasts where we hope to try and see some of the wisdom in the uh, early church and apply it to some of the issues that we are seeing today. And so the question we're looking at really is simply this, when If, should we leave the Church of England? When is the Church of England shot? When should we have nothing to do with it? What should we do if we think our bishops are beyond dodgy? Should we cross the road when they come towards us? All these sorts of questions, really. I suppose, how pure does the Church need to be for me to stay in it? And although... I'm joking to some extent, this is a live issue. Uh, There are many who are looking towards ordination in the summer months, wondering what they should do about the fact that they think their bishop is fundamentally wrong on many sorts of issues. And we've already seen, have we not, how some churches have withheld parish offer or maybe even broken communion with their bishops. And I'm recording this, we are all recording this, just after the Kigali statement as well and GAFCON and all sorts of things there. So what better people to discuss this with than Lee Gatiss, who, as you all know, is our erstwhile leader in church society, her director. He is the one uh, to whom we all bow. Whereas Lee has... (laughs) I don't think we should have that kind of uh, culture of deference, Chris. Uh... (laughs) I'm glad you thought I meant it. Uh, And then with him, somebody who wields more authority, because he, of course, has more authority, uh, Mark Smith, who is the Dean of Clare College in Cambridge and teaches patristics at that university. Because we're looking at some of the patristics issues here, he's a great person to have with us. And also, most important of all, of course, he is a member of General Synod, as I am as well. So this is a live issue for all of us. Now, to tackle this, we thought perhaps an interesting way is to step back a little, to take a broader view and revisit uh, a controversy in the fourth century known as donatism. And Mark, I just wonder, would you just perhaps sketch some of the issues there? Because they do have some parallels to us. Thanks so much, Chris. I'll, I'll do my best. And I should say thank you so much for having me on. I've been a, a long time listener of Heresy Half Hour, so I'm delighted <laughs> to be able to um, to contribute. If we um, have a mug, we'd give you one. <laughs> <laughs> well, well I, I guess we need to go back many, many centuries um, to um, to the third century and to a time of great persecution for the church. This is a time when, particularly under the Emperor Diocletian, there is a huge amount of um, of persecution of Christians. So church buildings being demolished and sacred books and vessels being confiscated or burned. And in that context, there's a huge amount of pressure on Christian clergy, particularly to um, to give in to these demands, to to hand over the the the, the precious uh, items in the church building, to hand over the land that the church possesses um, to the state under threat of torture or death. Um, now, amazingly, of course, as, as we know, many Christians did not buckle under those kinds of uh, threats and became martyrs. Others survived the torture um, and became what's called confessors. So others who were greatly respected for um, for being true to faith, being true to Christ um, under amazingly tough conditions. But understandably, inevitably, some um, clergy did um, did bow the knee and did give in. Um, and these became known as um, traditores, so those who were, were the handers over 
um, of, of the church's um, uh, precious things or um, or land to the state. It's the same way we, we get the word traitor from, from that as well, the idea of betrayal, of, of, of betraying Christ, betraying the faith, betraying the church. Mm. So the question then becomes when persecution um, lapses, when, when the church can have a bit of breather, what you do with these people who have shown a degree of, 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 of moral weakness, of, um, of, of a kind of um, uh, failure of faith, you might say. Um, mm. And there's a huge amount of, as you might expect, a huge amount of um, a spectrum of views, as it were, on, on what you do about that. It comes to a particular moment of, of crunch when the Bishop of Carthage dies in the early fourth century. And there's the question of, of who replaces him. And so um, uh, the um, the deacon under um, the previous bishop is chosen and they quickly get together three other bishops to consecrate uh, this man. The problem is that one of those three consecrating bishops called Felix was someone who was suspected about eight years previously of having lapsed under pressure of persecution, of having kind of... Um, mm. Uh, given uh, the church's um, vessels and, and Bibles and so on, given them over and um, you know, lapsed under under persecution. And so a group of those in the in the church of Carthage refused to recognize the validity of that consecration and instead consecrate their own bishop as a true, uh, the, the true valid bishop of the church of Carthage. So right from the outset, you essentially begin to have you know, like kind of two paths diverging from that point, two different accounts of who is the true bishop of Carthage. Each begins to have its own set of valid ordinations, its own set of liturgies and so on. So so in quite a short space of time in North Africa, you essentially get two rival churches, each of which is claiming for itself the title of, of the true church, of the, of the Catholic church, of the universal church. So um, I guess I should just um, say at this point that... Uh, uh, although we're in heresy half hour, of course, um, arguably <laughs> what we're dealing with here is not so much uh, a heretical group or a heretical tendency as a schismatic tendency, because the Donatists would have mm. fully subscribed to the creeds. They're Trinitarian. They believe in Christ being one person in two natures. Uh, they simply disagree on um, what are the boundaries of the true church? What, what is the identity of the true church in this world? So we should be having schismatic 60 minutes instead of heresy half hour. <laughs> if our listeners can can, can bear with another 30 minutes, yeah. they can cope with that. So it wasn't so much that it, it was this issue, really, um, of the validity of, of that consecration as a bishop. So there was no question over the, the, the chap who'd been consecrated as bishop. And there's no concern even over, as you say, over doctrine. It's just that fact was his consecration valid? Because one of those bishops may have been somebody who handed over. So, as you say, it is an issue really of that kind of discipline. How yeah. perfect do those three bishops need to be? Yeah, and I think, I mean, the, the, it's the classic example here where, you know, the, the, something good becomes bad because it's been corrupted. So, so the donors, if you were trying to give a positive spin here, they are they are godly people who are deeply concerned for the purity of the church. And they want to see of Christian leaders, especially um, a, a standard of Christian holiness. Um, the, the issue becomes that there, there's not much room for forgiveness. And they put the bar so high about what it means to be a, a true holy Christian that if you if you lapse at any point, I mean, the 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 kind of the worldview here is one of pollution. So it, it's like a kind of Levitical quality of of um, of pollution through sin. So the second that, as it were, there's one drop in one of the consecrators around this this new bishop 
that's enough to taint all of the the things that happen after him. So that bishop cannot affect the sacraments. He is no longer validly, um, he does not have the power, as it were, does not have the kind of validity to do that. His unworthiness or the unworthiness of one person in that group performing the act becomes uh, the reason why everything he then does is invalid. Hmm. And that then becomes a bigger issue over uh, North Africa. I mean, Augustine's in North Africa at the time as well. And he gets in, he has views, I think it's fair to say. Augustine. Over, <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, he over, has all views. sorts of things. And he, does he have views on this as well, Mark? Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. So, I mean, Augustine is dealing with this in a context, I mean, in, in Hippo in, in North Africa, where actually the Dontists are in the majority, you know, in terms of where he's living and ministering, it doesn't feel like a tiny sect of, of weirdos kind of, you know, in the corner. It feels in a sense like the majority church. Um, and so he's having to deal with, well, what are the boundaries of the church? What should we expect from the church in terms of um, moral purity among its members? And also, what does it mean for God to be acting in the sacraments in baptism and the Lord's Supper. Um, uh, what does it take for that sacrament to be, be valid? And I suppose Augustine um, begins with um, the Bible and he points to the parable of the wheat and the weeds or the wheat and the tares in, in mm. old language. Um, now, we might want to, to think about the, the precise exegesis of this a little bit, but, but essentially it's, it's a, a story of, of wheat and weeds, good and bad, growing up in the same field together. Uh, and the point of the story is uh, it's not the job of the servants there and then to try and pick out the weeds and just leave the lovely wheat. It's a job, as it were, um, for the owner of the land when he comes back um, to to separate out, to gather in uh, the wheat into the barn and to send the, the weeds to be burned. And for Augustine, this is crucial for understanding the nature of the church in this age. The church is a mixed body in which um, the, the, the good is ever mingled with the evil. Yeah. And so we shouldn't expect uh, the church to be pure in this age. Um, and the sorting out um, is done by God eschatologically, is done at the final judgment. So for Augustine, the Dontists make two mistakes. They presume firstly that they know the nature of the true church when actually only God knows. And they presume to think they can do the sorting out now rather than it being done at the end of time. Church Society is delighted to be partnering with the new Bishop of Ebbsfleet, Rob Monroe, in a series of regional conferences in May and June this year. On five dates and in different locations, all of which you'll find the details for on our website, churchsociety.org, we'll be meeting with ministers, church wardens, PCC members and others to hear from Rob about his role and the state of mutual flourishing for complementarians within the Church of England, but also we'll be spending time thinking about living in love and faith and how we can be best contending together to reform and renew the Church of England in biblical faith at this difficult time. Please do join us. You'll find all the information about how you can book on our website. And if you have any questions, please do contact the Church Society office for more information. We see this league coming up then in in the thirty nine articles, obviously a millennium later. But uh, there's there seems to be that understanding. Maybe even some of that language is behind some of the articles that we have as well. 
Yes, I think that's right. So a lot of the ungodliness that we we see um, in the later Middle Ages amongst the Catholic priesthood, amongst monks um, as well in the monasteries, leads people to, to think about this subject again uh, in a different context. Um, is it still valid if a really dodgy um, bishop who, who's leading the most ungodly, unchristian life you could possibly imagine, um, you know, is it still valid if he's consecrating people, if he's leading the Lord's Supper? So it's not just here a matter of a brief um, flicker, a lack of courage that some of those early traditories might have uh, displayed um, under fierce persecution. It's it's a decadent ungodliness that we see. And so that leads the reformers when they're reforming the church in the in the 16th century to also think about donatism or donatism um as well and we get that then enshrined in the 39 articles so in article 26 of the 39 articles we read although in the visible church the evil be ever mingled with the good as mark just alluded to and sometimes the evil have chief authority in the ministration of the word and sacraments you notice that sometimes dodgy people even get into chief positions in the church it then says, yet for as much as they do not the same in their own name, but in Christ's and do minister by his commission and authority, we may use their ministry both in hearing the word of God and in receiving the sacraments. Neither is the effect of Christ's ordinance taken away by their wickedness, nor the grace of God's gifts diminished from such as by faith and rightly do receive the sacraments ministered unto them, which are effectual because of Christ's institution and promise, even though they are ministered by evil men. That's just the first half of the article. But notice some of the key things that Mark was talking about there. Uh, mm. It's all about it's interesting that Christ's oh, institution, not about the, the goodness of the person who's leading. Go on. And it's saying really that the the worthiness, the the I mean to use more language of the Reformation, the ordinary means of grace and all this sort of stuff is is dependent upon Christ. It's Christ's church. Um yeah. it's these are Christ's sacraments, it's Christ's word. So even if the vessel that's carrying them or the person who's administering them may be corrupt, they still remain Christ's. That yes, would seem yes. to so to put it into my terms, if you think about ordination, say, my ordination, um has its roots and its authority in Christ, not in whichever bishop happened to be the one laying hands at me, laying hands on me all those years back. Yes. That's fair. In some ways, it doesn't matter who baptized you. I know, you know, Paul talks about this, isn't he? You know, I don't think I baptize anymore, apart from that one little family of Stephanus. And so it doesn't actually yeah. matter who baptized you because. Christ Paul's archdeacon you. would have been crossed. Though. He wasn't keeping his <laughs> records up to date. But yeah. um, I mean, there are, there's a church to put it in a in a really contemporary way. There's a church here in Cambridge where um, a few years ago, the minister um, just left his wife and his family and shacked up with somebody else who just happened to be a man. Um, and a lot of people were converted by that guy. And a lot of people really learned from his preaching because he was an excellent preacher. Do we now go back and say, oh, well, we just ignore everything he said, and it must be the opposite of the truth. Um, am I not converted if I was converted under his ministry? No, you are converted if you were converted under his ministry, if you're living a, a Christian life now, because 
it was Christ's power that was active there through his exposition of the word. Mm -hmm. You did truly learn um, about Exodus or Judges or Daniel, whatever book it was he was preaching on, um, even though he himself has proved to be uh, a traitor, can we say, a traitor mm -hmm. to the gospel in that sense. So it does sort of apply in that. I mean, we see all sorts of people nowadays who are making a shipwreck of their faith and their ministry mm -hmm. by scandals. Um, but that doesn't undermine, um, shouldn't undermine the faith of people who are converted and built up through their ministry if they were built up by the word of God and Christ. So does it not really matter? So I can just go away and, and sin as much as I like because actually it doesn't matter about me. It's all to do with Christ's sacrament. So is it, a, are we saying a sort of almost antinomianism here that, you know, it doesn't matter what clergy do? Is that what the article is suggesting? Um. I don't think so. No, of course, it's a terrible I'm prompting thing. you to read on yes, to the end of the article. I thought you might be, yes. <laughs> well, um, firstly, before I reach the, the, the end of Article 26, Article 20, just on the previous page, uh, says that nothing should be ordained in the church that is contrary to God's word written. So we, we, we have to assume at every point that what is being said in the church, what is being ordained, I mean, people being ordained but also um, the things that are being ordained as as being right and true or never ever to be contrary to god's word written that should be that is taken mm. for granted but the article 26 does go on after telling us about basically popping the donatist heresy it says nevertheless that's the first word there nevertheless it appertaineth um it, it, it's relevant to the discipline of the church the inquiry be made of evil ministers mm -hmm. and that they be accused by those that have knowledge of their offences and finally being found guilty by just judgment be deposed. What this is telling us is that true doctrine and godly lifestyle do matter for ministers and that even though the sacrament is still valid because they were, you know, they're properly uh, doing it uh, despite being ungodly, um, even though their their ministry might in some way still be valid and um, a means of grace, inquiry should be made of them. We, we shouldn't just let this go on uh, if ministers are teaching unsoundly or living unsoundly. It does call them evil ministers. Mm. Um, so there should there needs to be a system of church discipline. Um, there needs to be someone accusing them and inquiring about them finding them guilty in some sort of court and then being able to justly depose them. Uh, Paul talks about this as well in 1 Timothy um, chapter 5 and 6, when he tells Timothy how to regulate the church as a bishop in Ephesus. He tells him, you know, that you should be looking into um, dodgy ministers, uh, elders in your church in Ephesus, um, not not entertaining a, uh, things said against them unless it's by two or three witnesses, at least, but he does have some sort of regulation and being able to get rid of those who are dodgy. You think that's right, Mark? Have I read that correctly? And it's very um, it's very much reflecting the early church situation, isn't it? But in a new era. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I think that um, what Augustine wants to do is to remind us of, of the effect of original sin, of, of the fall that, yeah. that, that permeates all of church life. You know, it's, it's, it's in me, it's in you, it's in the whole church. And so he wants to disabuse us of that um that fantasy we can all sometimes have that the grass is greener somewhere else if only we kind of separate off from um these evil men over here we can create this this new edenic state where there's no sin at all and so i think that kind of it's it's a reminder that amid that desire for for purity and holiness of life 
we shouldn't kid ourselves that that sin sinks deeply into all of us and that a, a church insisting on spotlessness would be an empty church. Um, yeah. So I think understanding that the, the medicine of divine grace, which is a response to the, the depth of human sin, the perennial ongoing sin, the, the concupiscence that remains even in the regenerate. Very good. So in article, a sense, it, article nine. Sorry, <laughs> so in a sense, what it, it's, it's putting, placing a duty on the congregations in the churches um, and on the clergy, perhaps under the bishops, because we're having here, it's saying that we, we should be making inquiry. It's not as if we should be shrugging our shoulders and say, well, the vicar's rotten, but nonetheless, you know, the communion still works, or whatever it might be. But rather it's saying that we do have a duty as a congregation if we're finding there's false teaching or, or if we're finding that there is a lifestyle falling short to try and use the processes of the church. So it seems to be saying that, if I've understood this correctly, that we have to use the processes of the church, but not simply take our own decisions, which is what the donors seem to be doing. But rather, we should use the proper courts, the proper procedures that that we have. Um, it seems to me a lot in the early church. Um, well, you can correct me if I'm wrong here, but behind some of the Eastern Orthodox uh, understanding of um, of reception, that there are times when the higher authorities in the church may make a mistake, and mm. actually, it's the whole people of God who bring the church back into some sort of order. That we all share that responsibility together. Yeah, that, that's right. And actually, kind of Newman would argue that um, for, for much of the church's life in those early centuries, it was the laity that retained, as it were, the Orthodox faith and and kind of treasured it and kept it until the kind of the dodgy bishop gradually kind of died out or reformed. So um, yeah. the job job for all of us to be doing to guard, guard the good deposit. Yeah. I think Paul talks about that as well in the Bible. So in 1 Corinthians 5, is which, which is a verse that people are often shocked by. Um, but we are told to judge those inside the church. 1 Corinthians 5, um, he says, what have I got to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside, purge the evil person from among you. So, I mean, Paul is that saying there that the, yeah. the failure of the Corinthians is a failure of church discipline and church government. Yeah. That They ought to be judging of these things within the church and that they've got themselves into a mess because they failed to do this and that's something that often happens isn't it in church history we get a failure of church discipline i mean we have it right now in the church of england um and that's what happens when you when you get no true discipline what we've got i think is some erroneous understanding of comprehension and how comprehensive and broad latitudinarian you might say the church of england is and that ironically has tended to lead to a, a form of donatism which expels godly christians from the fellowship of the church because you've got to sign up to some new liberal shibboleth to be pure enough whatever that might be so that that takes us quite neatly you segued us it takes us quite neatly then onto the current situation and and where we might find uh the early debates over donatism the article 26 held of course with article 20 and how we might look to that playing out in in the life of the church of england today and particularly where we're starting to see broken communion between uh people and their bishops we've seen a statement from um gafcon What's our response in light of all of this? If I find myself with a bishop with whom I disagree fundamentally and I view these as first order issues, how does this apply to me? Uh, if I'm an ordinand uh, and I'm due in a month or two to 
sort of kneel before that bishop waiting for the imposition of hands. What do I do? Either of you. Help. Mark. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, there's ultimately a question of conscience there, I think, isn't there, Chris? There's kind of um, what you feel is, is, is right before God. I mean, I think that what Augustine would say into this is, is partly that um, uh, if we do not doubt that that bishop is a true bishop in the sense of being able to to effect um, how we understand ordination or certainly kind of um, uh, the other sacraments that the um, so I'm going to say that a bit again because I don't mean other sacraments sorry yes well of course ordination <laughs> is not a sacrament in our no. understanding no. but it may well have been in Augustine's um, and, and in the medieval church they would have counted ordination as one of the sacraments holy orders um, so yeah I think it's interesting that article 26 does say the sacraments it's talking about the ministration of word and sacraments. And yet for, mm. for the early church and the Donatist controversy, it was about the validity of a consecration of a bishop um, and therefore also mm. the validity of the sacraments after that. So maybe we can just take a loose understanding of sacraments then uh, yeah, and say that it's included. Sure, so Victor enumerated 30 of them, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so, yeah, I think that... Um, uh, if we don't doubt that the bishop can is a Jew bishop and able to do what um, he or she is able to do, then in one sense, we, we don't need to have a problem with the ordination, because in the Anglican liturgy, what you're required to do is to swear canonical obedience. That's firstly to the office of the bishop, not to the individual. And secondly, that means insofar as the canons uh, stipulate and require. So I think you, you can, if your conscience is able to, distinguish an individual who you may think is erring on many things and uh, his ability to um, to validly go through a um, a ceremony with you. And so in a sense, you're, you're sort of discerning or distinguishing the, the legal authority of yeah. the ordinary, the office holder of the diocesan bishop in that place, perhaps from the spiritual authority. But I'm just thinking of this kind of argument is used quite a lot within Anglo-Catholic circles um, with the sacramental validity of ordination, where there is a much higher view and a real sacramental view of, of ordination within that tradition. And to try and separate out the, the legal authority of the ordinary from the spiritual oversight. So you can legally be under the legal authority of your diocesan bishop, but you look for your spiritual leadership faith from, from flying bishops within that tradition. Am I sort of barking up the right tree on that one? Yeah, and I think, you know, in a sense, we can... Um... We could have particular issues in mind at the moment, which which are dominating our thoughts. But I mean, th there may be all kinds of ways in which the bishop that you're um, that you're going to be ordained by um, has dodgy views. It, you know, it might be I mean, whether he doesn't believe in the virgin birth or the resurrection or something. So, so I think what once we begin kind of um, uh, taking to ourselves a certain type of private judgment about how far you know, where we draw the line on a bishop's validity, we're beginning to at least kind of flirt with a donatist mm. tendency. Doesn't mean it's not right to be concerned about um, false teachers in the church and how they need to be rebuked and disciplined. But we just need to be aware of how that private judgment sits in the context of the Article 26 about the um, the discipline that, that's uh, affected by the wider church. Yes, I think that's yeah. I think that's right. And, and Augustine said we must not obey Catholic bishops, you know, even the, the true bishops, if they chance to err or determine anything contrary to the canonical scriptures so we're not to follow them into their error even if they are the proper catholic mm -hmm. bishops um they're properly ordained and consecrated themselves and they do have the power 
um, vested in them to, to do uh, the job, we shouldn't follow them in their own errors if they're if they're trying to do something that's contrary to God's word written. Um, I mean, my personal example is I was ordained by someone that others in the diocese told me was a universalist. So uh, which is a heresy, I think, condemned with an anathema in the 39 articles, a very strong thing. You know, the Anglican articles don't normally give you anathemas um, like the Council of Trent, I suppose. But we do have that in the 39 articles that you're not saved by whatever uh, sect or law of nature that you profess. Um, And I thought to myself, well, can I be ordained by this guy? He, He obviously doesn't believe in the articles. He doesn't believe in. John 14, 6 and Acts 4, 12, that we're only saved by Christ alone and um, and so on. Um, and I thought, well, in the service, he's going to ask me to swear obedience to, you know, to him in a canonical way. To, um, what is it? What, the words of the oath, uh, about true and canonical lawful. obedience yeah. in all things lawful Law, and honest. No, 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 no. So I'm signing up to the canons of the Church of England, of which he is meant to then act as a functionary. Um, so I have no qualms of signing up to the uh, the canons of the Church of England because Canon A5 tells me that the doctrine of the Church of England is scripture, the teachings of the fathers that are in accordance with scripture, uh, and particularly the 39 articles of Book of Common Prayer and so on. And I'm happy with that. Um, so I felt it was fine to be ordained by him. It was I was content, though I wasn't content with his doctrine. So I wanted in some way still to have a distance from that while accepting that I could still be ordained by him. I think that's the key thing at the moment is they're still having some sort of distance between us. And it may be the public thing that we don't want to publicly look like we're on the same page as them, Mm. but we could privately accept their ordination. Some have said, I'll be ordained by this person, but I don't want to take communion with them. Or I don't want to be in a church if they come and preach. I won't go to the Maundy Thursday service that they run in the cathedral and so on. So somehow creating a distance, preaching against the errors that they have propagated. That's what I did. I preached a sermon in in my curacy that was anti-universalist, if you like. I, I preached clearly on the, the uniqueness mm-hmm. of Christ. Um and actually, if if you're if you're desperate to see fewer of those kinds of bishops around in the church, the way to do that is to stay in, as, as you did, Lee, and to kind of to to contend and to to seek to kind of bring the church back to to clear godliness. Yeah, that's the idea. If only there was a society we could join, Mark, that would help us to reform and renew the Church of England in biblical faith, a fellowship of some sort, a sort of society to do with the church. Do you well, know? On easy terms. <laughs> But it is interesting. I mean, there is something remarked. I mean, you and I both sit on General Synod and it's fair to say that there's a range of views uh, on various things on General Synod. But I was encouraged at the last set of elections when evangelical, the evangelical wing of the Church of England seemed to be taking this seriously of engagement. Actually, suddenly we find that there's doubling of the representation on Synod, which Mm -hmm. made certain paths very difficult to try and take for the bishops. Yeah, and, and I think kind of we shouldn't underestimate, perhaps particularly within our own constituency, the oh, the the bells of King's Chapel are just are just sounding <laughs> in the background. <laughs> Wonderful in the background. Um, I, I think we shouldn't be aware that that our own zeal for holiness in our own constituency can often lead to that that kind of um, subtle temptation towards the idea of being a holy remnant that needs to separate itself off 
you know, that there's plenty of biblical, you know, parallels in the idea of the the minority being right, not the majority. And, you know, even mm. Noah's Ark, the ship of salvation only had eight people in it. This is an argument <laughs> that don't just use. So, so I think being aware in ourselves of that tendency towards saying, oh, you know, we need to, we need to separate off for the sake of holiness um, needs to be kept, you know, uh, in, in kind of balance with the need for proper discipline in the church. Even yes. Elijah didn't set up another tribe, did he? I mean, he, the prophets stayed within Israel. They, they prophesied yeah, There's a lot in, we they... can learn from the Old Testament prophets with regards to how things go down in the church these days. W- one thing I've wondered, though, is that you know people throw at us as evangelicals the accusation that we might be too Donatist. Um, mm. Well, Catholics and Donatists, I don't mean Roman Catholics, I mean Catholic with a small c, you know, universal church. Catholics and Donatists in in the early church both agree that sinful behaviour should be recognised as such. Um, So really, we're on a different page here. We're talking about outright heresy or completely obvious ungodly behaviour. And it's a failure to discipline immorality like that that creates schism and it's not those who want the godly behavior Mm. that are causing the schism it's a schism caused by the ungodliness of those bishops priests whatever um who who are encouraging that and catholics and donatists would agree on that wouldn't they yeah yeah and and it's that ungodliness or false doctrine that is the thing that that moves away from the catholic church which is sensed in the gospel and in sound teaching so it's it's them who are stepping away not not the others yes Yes, maybe that's a good place. As we've got to a half an hour uh, to leave that, but that that sense of that it's not up to us to decide who is and who is not. This is Christ's church. Uh, these are Christ's um, words. Uh, no, in the both the hearing of the word, the receiving of the sacraments. These are Christ's, and um, maybe the answer though is that we, if we find ourselves offended, the answer is actually get involved and do something about it. Take that last part of article 26 seriously and 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 use the mechanisms that we have to try and raise these things yeah and we should disobey if the bishop tells us that we must do something that contravenes scripture that's clear but we don't need to worry that we're somehow tainted by their errors or their ungodly life if we hold a license from them or a pto from them or something like that we we want to protest against it though and distance from it and hopefully try and pursue some sort of church discipline against it. But that uh, we don't need to worry that there's a taint over us because of what they hold to. So don't leave the Church of England, but do join church society. That's your message, Lee. Well, I think that's a good message, isn't it? I mean, as as an overall thrust for the podcast, that would be a great, a great way to close, Chris. Thank you. (laughs) We'll leave you there. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Church Society podcast. You can find the whole podcast archive on our website, churchsociety.org. Don't forget to subscribe to us on your usual podcast app. And we'd love it if you are able to leave a review or give us a rating over there as well. Mm-hmm.